Marilyn, Behind the Icon, a dramatic series on the life of Marilyn Monroe. Our story continues with Episode 3, I Was a Black Mark on a White Cross. September 1958. Between takes on location at the historic Hotel del Coronado during the production of Some Like It Hot, Marilyn Monroe and co-star Jack Lemmon rest against slant boards to avoid wrinkling their costumes. Both are wearing 1920s dresses designed by Ori Kelly. Lemmon is in drag for his role as a musician disguised as a woman because he's on the run from gangsters. Period automobiles line the hotel's circular driveway. The co-stars sip lemon water, waiting for the next camera setup. Aw, oh, Marilyn, don't let Billy throw you off just because you missed the cue. Remember the upper berth scene? You really sailed through that one in one take. One take. And when Billy said print, I thought, what happened? I was wondering if I got all the words right. <laughs> well, you see, I, when I'm prepared, I can do it in one take. Billy thinks I can't. Look, I'll be ready for whenever you get it right. Don't worry about me. I'll always be right in there with you. Thanks, Jack. That's sweet of you. Well, it's just that sometimes I get a little distracted and miss cues. But it always seems to be that way for me. You know, one time at the Hollywood Bowl, I forgot to drop my black robe on stage. It was a mistake. Drop your robe? I didn't hear about this. When did you perform at the Hollywood Bowl? No, silly. I missed the cue at the Easter Sunday pageant at the bowl when I was a little girl. I was the only black mark in a white cross. Oh. Oh. I thought... Never mind. Marilyn, they're almost set up. Let me do one last check on your face. Good. The sun is going easy on you. I do my best work at the beach. Hey, Whitey, I'm playing a girl in this picture. Don't I get a touch-up too? Marilyn, Jack... We're ready for you. Okay. Well, it's magic time. Here we go. <laughs> Each time a lovebird sings, I have no defenses. My heart is off on wings. I'm a setup for the moon when it's bright. I'm incurably romantic. And I shouldn't be allowed out at night with anyone quite like you. But oh, your arms are nice, and it would be awfully nice if you turned out to Starry-eyed like me And incurably romantic too Spring 1960 on the Hollywood set of Let's Make Love, Marilyn's affair with co-star Eve Montand has plunged her into confusion and crisis. 
A distressed Marilyn contacts her psychiatrist, Dr. Marianne Chris, in Manhattan. Chris recommends a professional colleague she knows on the West Coast, Dr. Ralph Greenson. Licensed mental health therapist, national certified counselor, and Marilyn Monroe biography author, Gary Vitaco Robles. This was Marilyn's first encounter with Dr. Ralph Greenson, a man who would play a significant role in her life until her death. Greenson's credentials seemed impressive. He was clinical professor of psychiatry at the University of California Medical School at Los Angeles, dean of the training school at the Los Angeles Institute for Psychoanalysis, and he was a member of the medical advisory board of the Reese Davis Clinic. Greenson was also psychoanalyst to Vivian Lee, Celeste Holm, and Frank Sinatra. Perhaps Greenson's connections to Sinatra convinced Marilyn of his credibility. When Marilyn arrives at Greenson's office on North Roxbury Drive in Beverly Hills, he notes that she is conditioned to go straight to the couch for a session of Freudian therapy. However, Greenson does not sit behind his patients' heads and take notes. He meets with his patients face-to-face, which takes Marilyn out of her comfort zone. Greenson believes that Marilyn appears too fragile for psychoanalysis, so instead, he assesses her daily life and provide supportive therapy. Uh, Dr. Greenson, I feel abandoned by my husband, Arthur, and my acting coach, Paula Strasberg. She's preoccupied with her daughter, naturally. My husband is cold and unresponsive. He's attracted to other women, dominated by his mother, or he neglects his children and his elderly parents. Also, I can't sleep. I'm awake all night. And sometimes I wonder what the night is for. It almost doesn't exist for me. It all seems like one long, long, horrible day. Dr. Chris inform me that you are taking several medications to sleep and function. Do you know that your body will become accustomed to the drug, so you'll have to take more of it to get the same effect? Marilyn demonstrates an extensive knowledge of pharmaceuticals, but describes having dangerously mixed drugs obtained from several doctors. Greenson learned that she is able to occasionally discontinue some of the drugs without withdrawal symptoms but is well on the road to developing an addiction to other prescribed drugs. Like many entertainers of the era, Marilyn struggled with prescription drug abuse during a time when little was known about chemical dependency, and options for recovery were scarce. Marilyn did not engage in recreational drug use with illegal substances, but she regularly used barbiturate sedatives and stimulant amphetamine drugs which were prescribed by studio physicians and which are just as dangerous. Like many who abuse prescription drugs, Marilyn was self-medicating her symptoms of a mental illness, major depression and hypomania, and the chronic pain caused by endometriosis, a gynecological condition that prevented Marilyn from becoming a mother. Greenson educates Marilyn on the body's ability to build a tolerance to the effects of barbiturates, requiring an increased dosage to continue providing the same effect. Mrs. Miller... I promise you will sleep with less medication. If you would recognize you are fighting sleep, 
as well as searching for some oblivion which is not sleep. Let us be modest about what we want to achieve here. We don't have time to make deep change since you'll soon return to New York and your analyst there. My treatment plan is to limit your intake of prescribed drugs and restrict you to obtaining medications only through one prescribing physician. Greenson responded to Marilyn as a healing but firm father figure, and he set clear parameters with her, explaining that he would not assist her in killing herself, targeting her husband with malevolence, or excessively self-medicating herself with drugs. Marilyn follows up this first meeting with Greenson by visiting him for a second session at his Beverly Hills office. She requests to lie on the couch as she did with Dr. Chris, but the analyst redirects her to a face-to-face -face session. Marilyn seems guarded and distant. Having previously been treated by Margaret Hohenberg and Marianne Chris, she has never worked with a male analyst, so new issues arise from Greenson's gender. I'm hurt because you didn't think I was modest. You literally interpreted my comment from our first session, Mrs. Miller. Let me clarify. When I said, let's be modest about what we achieve, I did not mean to imply you were behaving in an overtly sexual manner. Instead, I was suggesting that we set realistic expectations for our brief work together. All right. Well, that's reassuring. <clears throat> Dr. Greenson, you asked me to simply describe my general feelings. Well, if I'm generally anything, I'm generally miserable. I've been taking a beating like a, a soldier in a war. Well, I remember things from my childhood that burn in my mind. Marilyn's comments about her feelings and childhood memories make Greenson pause and take notice. She expresses herself in a way other celebrity patients don't usually communicate. Marilyn is more open, real, and direct. This intrigues Greenson professionally and also excites him personally. In a letter written to a colleague, Greenson notes a dynamic in Marilyn's relationships. He writes, As she becomes more anxious, she begins to act like an orphan, a, a waif, and she masochistically provokes others to mistreat her and to take advantage of her. As fragments of her history came out, she began to talk more and more about the traumatic experiences of an orphan child. As the session continues, Marilyn discloses an early childhood memory that reveals a negative frame for her identity. This provides Greenson with an insight into the core and depth of her psychological pain. In second grade, um, I participated in Easter Sunday sunrise service with other children at the Hollywood Bowl. We all wore black choir robes over white tunics and student information of a cross. We sang as the sun rose behind us. On cue, the other children threw off their black robes in unison, while instantly changing the cross from black to white. <clears throat> Distracted by the fluffy white clouds in the sky, oh, I didn't see the cue. 
and I was the only child who forgot to shed their robe. I was the only black mark on a white cross. Hmm. A black mark on a white cross? Yes. What does that mean to you? Oh, you see, I was a mistake. My mother didn't want to have me. I guess she never wanted me. I probably got in her way. I... I wish, and I still wish, she had wanted me. You feel unwanted, unloved. Mm, I, I feel unlovable, worthless, unworthy of love. Yes, do you, uh, do you view your mother as the source of these feelings? None of this is my mother's fault. She was mentally ill. I come from a long line of family members who had psychiatric disturbances. My worst fear is that I'll be institutionalized too. Just like my mother and my grandmother. We are slowly revealing your inner conflict. I think we will stop for now, Mrs. Miller. I recommend you return tomorrow, and I would like you to make a few notes about what you know about your family's history of mental illness. That would be very helpful for me when we meet next. Would you uh, agree to that? I would. Um, thank you for being sensitive and understanding. I, I feel good about today. You were brave and worked hard today, Mrs. Miller. You're beginning to make conscious your unconscious thoughts and motivations. You experienced catharsis and released strong emotions, providing relief. Over time, Greenson experienced unchecked countertransference with his famous patient, seemingly projecting his own personal issues and feelings onto her. He would soon behave like an overly protective parent by fostering Marilyn's dependence upon him rather than by assisting her in developing autonomy. Although he cared for Marilyn, Greenson was known to be a flamboyant extrovert whose narcissism clouded his professional judgment in her treatment. Where do you want to start today, Mrs. Miller? I thought we would start with my great-grandfather. What do you know about him? All right, um, well, uh, I made some notes. Uh, his name was Tilford Hogan. Uh, he was a descendant of John Hogan, uh, who in the 1770s was a member of the Daniel Boone Scouting Unit. Uh, he helped map the eastern wilderness from Virginia to Kentucky. Um, my great-grandfather taught himself to read, had interests in literature and poetry, despite lacking a formal education. Um, and from what I know, he was said to be generous and shared food and supplies 
with friends and neighbors. You sound proud of him. But I sense from you there's something sad about his story. <clears throat> oh, there is. Telford, come and help me. Some of these sacks from the store are heavy. <sighs> Where are you? Mr. Mulhall, have you seen Tilford? Nope. Can't say that I have. Tilford! Can you put this feed in the barn? I'll unload. Sweet mother of God. What? What's happened? Oh, my dear God, no. Tilford, no! Never seen a man hang a shell before. I'm real sorry, Mrs. Hogan. Why, Tilford, why? Emma finds Tilford hanging from a rope tied around his neck from a second-floor joist in the barn. An inquest deems Tilford's death a suicide. Tilford's succession of jobs, poverty, and divorce at a time when divorce was not the norm also suggests that he most likely suffered from a mental illness, probably depression, which ultimately led him to taking his own life in May 1933. Many historians agree that 1933 was the worst year of the Great Depression. Marilyn Monroe's great-grandfather Tilford Marion Hogan became a tragic statistic of the economic woes facing the country. Tilford's wife had divorced him, and he had remarried a woman named Emma Wyatt. Within a few years, both of the couple's health seriously declined. Emma became ill with heart disease, while Tilford's lungs and kidneys began to fail. Tilford's daughter was Della May Hogan, my grandmother. She was the child of Tilford's first wife, whose name was Jenny Nance. My grandmother died um, when I was just over a year old. Hmm. When you think of your grandmother, what immediately comes to mind? She tried to do something very terrible when I was defenseless mm. in my crib. But I don't want to talk about that today. Not yet. Mm. I see. Uh, what do you feel safe sharing about your grandmother. Let's start there. Uh, I do know she dropped out of school and married before she was 15 years old. Her husband's name was Otis Elmer Monroe. He's where my family gets the Monroe name. And my grandmother was only a child when she'd married. Um, she and my grandfather lived briefly in Mexico. Mm -hmm. uh, their first child together was my mother, Gladys. Can we take a little break? Hmm. Well, you have hit upon something and are avoiding it. <clears throat> All right. My grandmother put the men in her life before her children. How did you come to this conclusion? My grandmother saw 
her children as obstacles to her new relationships. Mm. When her husband Otis died, she married another man named Graves, who was abusive. Mm-hmm. When my grandmother left him, she brought my mother and her brother, my uncle Marion, to live with her. With yet another man named Granger. With this man, she never married. Hmm. Okay, go on. Uh, then what happened? My uncle Marion became defiant. I think he felt angry that my grandmother forced this man upon him as a father. Hmm. Um, so then, my uncle was sent away. So he couldn't interfere anymore. That left my mother, who in my grandmother's eyes, was still in the way. So, um, my grandmother introduced my mother to a businessman by the name of Baker, for whom she had worked, probably hoping to marry her off. Right. Um... My mother was only 14. Well, I'm your child. My mother then became pregnant. Uh, so, my grandmother signed my mother's marriage certificate, falsifying her age so that she appeared to be an adult. Wow. I believe my grandmother surrendered her to that man. Whose name was Jasper Baker. I see. Well, what happened to her baby? Uh, she had my half-brother Jackie. And then after she gave birth to my half-sister Bernice, both with Baker. Uh, uh, Bernice now lives in Florida with her husband and her daughter. And where is Jackie? Jackie died when he was 13. Hmm. What happened to your mother? My mother's husband accused her of being an unfit to raise their children. Well, how did he come to that conclusion? <clears throat> My mother was visiting her husband, Jasper's side of the family, Baker's who lived in Kentucky. One day, during the visit, um, my mother hiked uh, into the mountains with her husband's younger brother without a chaperone. <sighs> so my mother, being a married woman, and going off with another man alone like that was unacceptable. When my mother returned, uh, Jasper went into a jealous rage and he beat my mother with a horse bridle until she bled. <clears throat> well, after that, uh, my mother fled back to Los Angeles. Then um, Jasper kidnapped the children and took them to Kentucky. <sighs> Please, go on, go on. Well, 
After my mother and Jasper divorced, my mother met and married a man of Norwegian descent named Edward Mortensen. He was a, a meter man for the Southern California Gas Company. But that marriage ended too. Uh, so, well, that's the story. My mother was abandoned by her first husband. She left her second husband. Uh, and then... Uh, and she was abandoned by her own mother. Hmm. So your grandmother abandoned your mother. Why did she do that? My grandmother, Della, uh, too cough. She left with her husband when his job took him out of the country. Uh, this was a time when my mother needed her the most. I think she was very delicate, uh, very delicate condition. She was pregnant with me. I see. Mrs. Miller, you tell me about the men in your family abusing or abandoning the women. Parents viewing their children as obstacles. Mothers abandoning daughters. Do you see a link between your feelings about those events to your feelings about your current relationships? Uh, I'm following you. Well, you initially tell me you feel abandoned by your husband and your acting coach, Paula. And you went into crisis on the film set when you became intimately involved with your co-star, Mr. Montant. Yes. Mm-hmm. You appear to project your anxieties onto others in your life. Could it be, Mrs. Miller, that because you feel unlovable, as you said, you expect to be abandoned as well? Oh, my greatest fear is abandonment. I, I frantically avoid it. Perhaps your anxious expectation of being abandoned by your husband. Hmm? Drove me to Mr. Martin. Hmm, I never thought of it that way. Right. Good, good. I'm, I'm glad we managed to shed some light on your situation. I do have one question, though. Aside from that story, I'm curious to know something more related to the women in your family history, your personal history, to be exact. Who have been women in your life who have had a more positive influence or been role models for you, outside of your profession, I mean? Well, there was uh, Grace McGee, my mother's best friend. Um, there was my half-sister, Bernice, of course, and another woman who cared for me, Anna Lower. She was Grace's aunt. They were all a very important part of my early life. Yes, your early life is most definitely another story I would like to hear more about and understand in continuing our discussions. My earlier life. All right. And one more thing. I'm sure it would not surprise you to hear that 
Many of my other patients have both tragedy and triumph in their family and personal histories, very much like you. That's what makes us all human. Mrs. Miller, I do hope very sincerely that we'll be able to continue meeting together in the future. I feel that we can achieve further breakthroughs together as we did today with your family history. I think I would like that as well. You, you've been very helpful to me, Dr. Greenson, and I thank you for that. Of course, Mrs. Miller, of course. Marilyn Monroe's pedigree was glaringly dysfunctional on many levels and included intergenerational mental illness, the sexual abuse of children, broken families, absent husbands and fathers, and single mothers who financially struggled and frequently partnered with a succession of men. During a time of economic hardship and limited choices, the women in Marilyn's family were true survivors who managed despite the odds against them, and they passed their strength as well as their genetics of mental illness onto her. For the facts behind the scenes portrayed in this episode, be sure to listen to our companion podcast, Norma Jean, Discovering Truths, a discussion around the historical events drawn from Marilyn's life, which we are using to create the dramatic narrative in every episode. For the complete experience of our series, visit our website at BehindTheIcon.com where you can listen to every episode and also follow the story through historical photographs, videos, and exclusive anecdotes. You can subscribe on the website to join our community and get special updates about the series. On Facebook, search Maryland Behind the Icon and stay connected to our social posts. 
Subscribe to the audio series of Maryland Behind the Icon on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or where you're listening now. We'd love for you to give us a review or rating if you're enjoying what you're hearing. You can also support the show and the production by checking out the offers from the advertisers and sponsors you hear in the show or find on our website. This dramatic audio series is based on the two-volume biography by author Gary Vitaco Robles titled Icon, The Life, Times, and Films of Marilyn Monroe.